What up, what up? Welcome back to another edition of Green with Envy. As always, it's your boy Will Weir checking in. How you doing? How you living? Joining me as he does each and every time, best friend, co-host, coach of the podcast, the one and only Greg Manakis. How are you this morning, my guy? Yeah, we are recording Monday morning. Uh, so everyone that's listening right now, you'll be hearing this about an hour after we actually record it versus about 12 to 18 hours after we record it. So Will and I drinking our coffee, going through our morning routines, um, just mixing it up a little bit today. And I'm happy to be here. Happy to talk some hoops with you, bro. Yeah. And just for those of you listening. So part of the reason that Greg and I are recording at what is, uh, just before 7 AM our time out here in Austin, Texas, uh, I was away for the weekend in Mexico city celebrating my girlfriend's birthday. Shout out Lorena. And, uh, so the voice, uh, in addition to being before 7 AM, the voice may be a bit raspy today. So, or there may it's, be it's, may, it's a bit nasally, bit nasally. Little, yeah. yeah. There, there's yeah. going to be a little bit of sound distortion from your boy over here. So appreciate y'all hanging with us. But with that, there's a pretty big game this past weekend. Greg didn't yes. unfortunately go the Celtics way, but it's one that we got to talk about here. And of course we're referring to the Celtics attempt to get revenge on the golden state warriors for the NBA finals, but they fall 123 to 107 in the golden state. Now, Greg, as I mentioned, I was away in Mexico City, so we were in the middle of doing dinner, so I was kind of keeping up with the game on my phone, had to rewatch it uh, through different parts yesterday, catch up on some articles. But, you know, I, I want to get your take just just going through this game because it's really tough for, for us when, when we miss the game live. I know what's going to happen, so I'm kind of mm-hmm. anticipating a little bit of, of what I'm looking for. And it's funny, I was actually thinking about this. If I didn't know anything and I just saw, I think it was one of the first – one of the first two possessions of the game, Jason Tatum just cooked Draymond Green off the dribble and has like a really nice set of moves into a spin move for a layup. I would have thought, man, this game is going to go really well. But unfortunately, I kind of knew what was going to happen. So walk me through a little bit of of your thought process as this game was was going on. I just hated the game plan in general, especially on the defensive end. You know, being down Rob and being down Al Horford against a Warriors team is going to put you in a few compromising positions where you're starting Blake Griffin, you have Luke Cornett, both guys can't switch on the perimeter. So you're kind of uh, forced to go into a drop defense. However, I think the drop defense was far too deep and it was far too consistent where Blake Griffin and Luke Cornett were just sitting literally in the paint the entire time they were on the court. So, so real quick, I, 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 want, no, I want your thoughts to continue, but that was, and I knew that was something I was kind of expecting just from some text that, that you had sent in a, in a group chat we have, and I saw a little bit on Twitter. And that was one of the first notes that I put in my phone, just to remember, was this wasn't just drop. This felt like a, a crazy deep drop, and especially when you factor in who you're playing on the perimeter with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Jordan Poole, guys who you give that much space to, you're in trouble, whether it's going to be them launching from three or them getting downhill or Clay getting into, you know, his pickup, you know, his mid range. And that was the number one thing that, that really stood out to me was that this wasn't just felt like drop. It felt like, like you just mentioned, they were in the paint as screens were being set at the three point Mm -hmm. line or above the three point line. And that was a, a very jarring, you know, kind of scratch your head moment during this game. 
Yeah, you like the the whole point of drop obviously is to force some mid-range shots, contest from behind. We have some guys that have the length to do that, but the way that the Warriors run their offense and how smart their bigs are, you know, if they don't have that first shot, they're just going to rescreen. You know, they're just going to go give and go. They're just going to hit the ball to the other side of the court and get somebody going off the same action on the other side, which happened many times. And my whole thing as a coach is I want to make sure that the other team is out of rhythm and not playing within rhythm. And Clay Thompson had 20 points in the first quarter just because he was, you know, he was going off on those uh, on on that deep, deep drop defense. Mm -hmm. There were some of them that he missed, you know, and that's what you want. You want to force some long twos, but you can't allow guys like Steph Curry Clay Thompson and Jordan Poole to get into a rhythm. And all three of them were in a great rhythm the entire night. And it started from the very beginning of the game, sitting in that deep drop. Jeff mm-hmm. Van Gundy and Mark Jackson were just like bewildered with the defensive scheme. And Joe Mazzulla didn't make any adjustments to that scheme until the last two minutes of the first half. And that's when the Celtics were down 10. They made a little run. I Close think they the forced two or three turnovers in the last two minutes. And then Steph hit that big three to kind of put it back up to around six or eight. But when you saw the Celtics play their normal style of defense or normal, more aggressive switching, uh, forcing turnovers, being long and athletic, when you allow a team like the Warriors to walk into open jumpers, you're just setting yourself up for failure. And the fact that Missoula didn't make any adjustments really until that last two minutes and then until the fourth quarter, I just didn't understand what he was thinking. I just I thought it was a really poor coaching performance by Missoula. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I could somewhat reasonably look to for that, because with Steph Curry, that's just a bad idea. Steph's having an unbelievable season. He's, you know, we've talked about this when we did our All-NBA and MVP. You know, Steph's having not just a 40-50-90s, and he's like several points above each of those categories. Steph's having, you know, maybe the best season of his career. Clay Thompson, on the other hand, has not had a great start to the season and has been a little bit up and down. So that's the only thing that I could think of is that maybe they were real, trying to 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 play off clay not having a great season but clay we all know clay loves these moments right clay's a a momentum moment guy and you talk about that word rhythm and that was as i was watching the game you know seeing clay kind of get off early and then as the game went on he missed a couple of those clay thompson heat check threes but the fact that he was feeling because clay's you know he's not a guy that typically forces too many bad shots he forces it when he's feeling it and he thinks that he's going to get that crowd that electric crowd on his back because he is kind of the lightning rod for that because everybody loves clay thompson and so the fact that he was even got into a rhythm and felt comfortable enough to take some of those irrational clay thompson threes you know that was part of the the big issue but that's the only thing i, I can somewhat rationally think too is hey let's let's let, let's see if clay is is going to get going because it has not been the case for clay many times this season and so if he's going to be off and then he's going to have these shots that he feels like he should take that's going to play into you know into our hands a bit but then when clay's hitting them and he has i think 20 points in the 20 or 24 points in the first half you know you need to you need to make an adjustment i think a little bit quicker because it's it's still Clay Thompson. This isn't a surprise mm-hmm. that he can do this. You're just betting that on the the little bit the sample of data that you have for the season that he might not be at that same level, but when he starts to knock him down, you got to find a way to adjust. For sure. And I think, you know, with the Celtics defense, you know, we we have some guys that as I said are really good at chasing guys over the screen. We saw Derek White do some um great 
uh, lock and trails on Steph Curry, block to Steph Curry three pointer, which you almost never see, uh, especially from a guard. You know, if if Steph gets his shot blocked, it's normally on a switch against a big. Someone like Rob could contest high. Um, but Derek White was great on defense all night. And I kind of wanted to talk with you about the end of the game lineup that Missoula decided to go with because there was one noticeable exception from that lineup. And it was a guy who dominated in his limited minutes was Malcolm Brogdon. So I know that you saw I was upset Brogdon wasn't on the court at the end of the game. He only played two minutes and 26 seconds in that fourth quarter, yeah. only played eight minutes in the second half after being a consistent so- a source of offense in the first half. And Brogdon looked great in the first half. I was just really upset with Missoula that he didn't have the the confidence to play Brogdon down the stretch. I don't know really what was going through his mind not having him on the court because the Celtics were were struggling to generate really good offense and Brogdon yeah. Brogdon and JB were the only two guys that were getting us easy shots. Yeah, it, it, honestly this this felt a little bit like malpractice not having Malcolm Brogdon or having him play 8 minutes total. And so, you know, like I said, going into my rewatch, I knew that there was going to be a stretch where he would not return. And it was about 930 left in the in the fourth quarter was when Brogdon was pulled. And I think the frustrating part for me is like, listen, end of the day, and we'll talk about Tatum and others. This is one game. This is one game. I honestly don't think it's that big of a deal. It's still a line from our guy, Adam Taylor. We were outplayed, not outmatched. I think that's a, a very important line that he dropped because I think that's that's easily correctable. If you're outmatched, that means we need a trade. We need new personnel. We need a whole new strategy. I think there's a lot of things that just can be fixed, and it was you know a bad game. And you know with Malcolm Brogdon, it the, the frustrating part for me is we've said this since we signed him or since we traded for him in the offseason, I should say. He's going to fill a lot of the gaps that we were very obviously missing in the finals. And that's what he did in the first half. He was five of eight, two of four, got to the line four times, had three rebounds, three assists with 14 points, and then only plays eight minutes in that second half. And especially on a night where Tatum just didn't have it going. It just wasn't Tatum's night. Like I said, I you watch that that first move he makes, you're like, okay, this might happen here. But, you know, he missed a couple shots at the rim, missed a couple open shots, and those free throws late kind of killed any, any last momentum opportunity. And so, you know what? Those nights are going to happen. Was it unfortunate timing because of the spotlight, because of, you know, Saturday night, finals rematch? Yes, it's unfortunate, but it happens. But Jalen Brown had it going. Jalen Brown was someone who could generate some offense for the Celtics. You mentioned Malcolm Brogdon had it going in the first half. And that was something that was desperately missing in the finals was not having. All right. These two guys don't have it going. Let's pray to God. Marcus Smart has a night where, you know, he he hits a couple of threes that, that you wouldn't expect. And you don't even want Marcus Smart to be in that position. And that's why Malcolm Brogdon is so important. Why he is the guy that we've been like, oh, my God, can you imagine what the finals would have looked like? With him, And I would love to know because we didn't really get that opportunity in the second half. The second half was the chance to see, hey, one of the Jays don't have it going. Do you have a counter move? And Malcolm Brogdon is supposed to be that guy. And so why Missoula didn't didn't go to that, I, I honestly just don't have an answer for. I don't know if there was any post game, you know, answers or questions given for this. But for for when you're looking for offense and we've talked about this before, I think we think we both collectively think Malcolm Brogdon is the third best offensive player on this team. Especially when you're looking for scoring. There's there's not even a question about it. And so when you have one of your stars struggling, this is the benefit of having a guy who can average 20 points in a main role on your bench is that you have him and he can play make on top of that. He's not just a one trick pony. It's not, you know, a microwave scorer. He can come in and do multiple things. He can play defense. And so why he only played eight minutes and only about two and a half minutes in that fourth quarter. 
I honestly, I, I do not have a reasonable explanation for that. Yeah, it's it's a moot point if if Tatum actually plays well in that fourth quarter because Tatum had a bunch of good looks. He had a layup at the rim that he just smoked when uh, he was driving on on Draymond going to his left. So like maybe the conversation's a bit different if Tatum just does what Tatum normally does in a game like that. And he's done all year. But to me, you know, it's it's really choosing between you're not going to sit one of the Jays, right? So you're choosing between Smart, White, and Grant. I think those are the three guys that were on the court as well. You kind of need Grant in yeah. in the game at that point just because of his size. And Grant was pretty solid throughout the night. Didn't really do all that much, but didn't really make mistakes. Um, Derek White's shot was just off from the very beginning of the game. It looked like I don't know if you listen to him on the Old Man in the Three podcast. Yeah, JJ JJ talked about not wanting to jinx him, and it looked like he jinxed him a little bit. The <laughs> yeah, yeah, mechanics yeah. were off. He was fake. Yeah, we're, bl- we're we're blaming JJ Reddick for this. He, after after Derek White, Paul George didn't shot off the side of the backboard. We we may have to blame JJ Reddick for this. Yeah, I don't I don't know what was going on with Derek White's shot, but he was playing great defense, right? Yeah, three three blocks in this game, by the way, including that one on Draymond at the rim, which was yeah. really impressive. Yeah, Derek White's been great on the defensive end, and then you have Smart, right? And this is one of those games where, as you said, you don't want to have to rely on Marcus Smart to be your your third source of of scoring and playmaking um and he just from the beginning of the game seemed a little bit off you know it's one of those games where Mark is I don't know if he just gets too excited or something like that but he wasn't necessarily thinking the game uh as and being as thinking but also being instinctual in this game it seemed like he was trying to force things to happen and when Marcus plays like that, he's just not as effective. He's been so good this year, just being a, a pure point guard, classic point guard setting the table for everybody. And in this game, he was just shooting the ball a little too quickly. He didn't take a lot of shots, but I didn't I didn't love the shots that he took. Um, his defense was solid, right? He, he forced a few turnovers, had a, a nice couple of steals. Mm-hmm. But it was just one of those games where Marcus wasn't great. Right. And if Tatum's not great in the game, Marcus isn't great in the game. That's why you have Malcolm Brogdon. Malcolm Brogdon should have been on the court more in that fourth quarter. I I can see the arguments for why Missoula decided to go with White over him, decided to go with Smart over him, decided to go with Grant over him. But when he has it going in that first half, you need to see more from Brogdon. Yeah. Right? He was he was getting exposed a little bit on the defensive end. He's not a great screen navigator. He's more of a, a good like ISO defender, more help side defender. So when you're going up against those actions that the the Warriors run, I can understand the defensive argument that you know White's a better screen navigator, Smart's a better screen navigator, so on and so forth. But we needed offense on the court. But you're down yeah. ten. You're down. You're down double digits or close to double digits for for most of that. And, and and I'm with you. I, I get the balance of it. And and this was kind of. I think you and I had this discussion earlier in the season where it was one of the Cleveland games, which which mm-hmm. we lost. You know, yeah. both of those in overtime. But it was. I think I think we need to go with Brogdon here. And he actually went with Brogdon in in one of those games. Didn't didn't work out. But I was. This this is going to be. I think the one kind of ongoing plot line in some of these games is. When this moment arises, will Missoula be able to say, I'm going to go with Brogdon, who's technically, quote unquote, a bench guy, you know, even though he's really not, he's really kind of a sixth starter. And so this is going to be interesting to see what the response is when the Celtics are put in another similar situation like this, because I think, you know, there's just there's just no doubt about it. If Brogdon's healthy, if it's not for any type of health concern, Brogdon needs to play more than he played 22 minutes and 48 seconds. He needs to play more in a game like this. Like it's it's just very cut and dry. And to the point of one thing you talked about with Marcus was playing kind of instinctual. 
I do think that kind of resonated in my, at least in my watch of, of the game for the team. And maybe it was the moment, maybe it was thinking about getting that revenge. I saw a lot of people saying that the Warriors have the Celtics number. The Warriors are, are in the Celtics heads. Yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. Maybe it was just a one game where you have a couple days off. You know, you just, you just beat the number, what was at the time, number one seed in the Western Conference so badly that you were tootsie rolling on their floor before the game ended. You know, so maybe it's coming off that. You have two days. Maybe you're sitting a little bit too high. You're thinking a little bit too much about, all right, we got to go make a statement when really it's it's a game in you know early December, mm-hmm. you know? And so it, I really don't want to make too much of it, but it did feel like the team as a whole was you know, a, a little bit slow as far as like their, their thought process, as far as moving the ball. Cause I thought they moved the ball. Okay. But it was typically about a step too slow. And then the focus at times kind of went in and out. And for me, when the game really flipped was about, I think it was a six point game in the third quarter and the Warriors got back to back breakout, easy layups, just nobody getting back for the Celtics. Mm-hmm. One was for Clay Thompson. One was Jordan Poole. that put it to 10 that had the crowd in it. Like you said, they had, they were right around that six point mark. That's easy to come back from Then Once you get to double digits with this team, then you're one Steph Curry or Clay Thompson dagger away from feeling like we just can't climb this mountain. And they were in that position for basically the last quarter and a half after letting out those, those two breakout layups. So for me, that at, at that point, it felt like it was really tough for them to climb and get back into the game after they let those two breakouts go. For sure. And one last point on this on this Missoula rotations at the end of the game. Like, I'm, we're not advocating for every single game, like Marcus Smart's on the bench every single game, or if someone's on the bench every single game. But the fact that Malcolm Brogdon is as talented as he is and is willing for the sake of the team to sit at the end of games Everybody on the team outside of the Jays, really, and yep. maybe maybe you could make an argument for one of them, but th- th- no, like the Jays need to no, be on the, the court. The, the right? Jays should be out there. It's it, everyone yeah. else is should be a, vers- a versatile matchup issue. Exactly, depending on so what the situation. If if Missoula decides at some point to sit a Marcus Smart at the end of the game in favor of a Malcolm Brogdon, Smart's got to be okay with that, and I think he will be. We haven't seen it yet. Um, so we can't say, we can't really speculate on that. But I think what's going to happen is smart because he's got a lingering ankle issue. He's going to have to sit a few games. And hopefully in those games, we have some close end of game situations so we can see what Brogdon running the show down the stretch would actually look like. Because if that's the case, then maybe Missoula can be like, oh, that really worked and we we could not be stopped in that situation. So maybe should the should the occasion arise later in the season, I can have the confidence to go to that. He should already have the confidence to go to that. Yeah. But maybe when there's proof of concept and Smart's watching from the bench, there maybe there's a conversation that ha- that happens behind the scenes where Marcus even like suggests it or something like that. I'm not saying that'll happen, but it's a yeah. possibility. And I expect it to happen at some point because maybe Smart will be in foul trouble in one game. You know, I, anything can happen. And Brogdon should be on the court in more situations at the end of the game, especially in a finals rematch where he was the the missing piece from last year. Yeah, no doubt. And and before we we move on from from this game, I think we need to just touch on on Jason Tatum just because that was a you know heavy yeah. talking yeah. point. To me, it's it's one bad game. I, I I think it's it's amplified because of the Saturday night magnitude of it. ABC, you know, revenge game, and then you add in no Andrew Wiggins, who you know we've opined about his defense from from last playoffs specifically going up against Luca and following that up by going up against Tatum uh, in the finals, he doesn't play in this game. And so I, I think when you add in all those factors, it, like I said, it amplifies this 
this one poor performance and we look through, you know, now 28 games or so into the season, whatever it is. And Tatum's had, I think, three bad games, maybe that you could you could really point to all season. Other than that, he's still probably the top MVP candidate or second. Or he's in the top two, three, whatever, whatever it is that you want to put it at this point. He is right there. To me, I, I really don't think much of this other than just it's an unfortunate time for a bad game. But I really believe that's all it was. And he missed a couple of shots that that he's been making this year. And for me, it's just it's just not a concern. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird from Tatum. He wasn't as aggressive as he's been in in big games this season. And I don't know why that is. You know, early in the game, he got his layup blocked by Clay on that cut. It was a great cut. Tatum was still moving off the ball, still screening and rolling out of it, slipping screens. He was getting some good looks, as you said. But to get blocked by Clay early in the game, it seemed to kind of rattle him a little bit. That, But that's also a moment this year where Tatum has either dunked that ball or he's shot faked and reverse pivoted and did that little lefty layup on the other side that he's done a few times. And for whatever reason, he just seemed a little casual in the game. And that's something, you know, with with Tatum, yeah, with Tatum over his career, you know, that was kind of the knock on him is that he does play a little casually at times. And this year, what's been different is he, from the very get-go of this season, he's been ultra aggressive and showing a different side of himself. And I don't know if it's like the big bro syndrome. He sees Draymond on the other side. He respects Steph. He respects Clay. And, you know, Ime even talked about this at the beginning of last season, how he, he needs to stop showing guys so much respect. Mm-hmm. There's that one play where him and Draymond go to the ground. And he helps Draymond up instead of running back in transition, which a lot of people are upset about on Twitter. And, like, I get it. I get it. Like, you probably should run back on defense and not help help Draymond up. Like, it's probably the right thing to do in that situation. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that was a thing on Twitter, but I didn't notice that. I wasn't going to bring it up, but I was like, I didn't. It, it was something that did catch my eye as, I get it. But we're in transition and we're down. I would kind of prefer that you be available as a trailer for an open three. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just a weird move by him. Um, he, you know, when he was shooting those free throws that he ended up missing in the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. a lot of like heavy breaths before he shot those. He looked a little nervous. At went the line. long and then went real short on that second mm-hmm. one. And that 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 instance right there felt very mental. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. I think he was just in his own head and that happens, man. Like, I mean, you know, we, we talk about our, our pickup games, but in, in the championship game that we just played, we were all a little bit nervous and we like the first half we scored 11 points. We talked to (laughs) like, and everything, we were just like a little anxious and it seemed like Tatum was anxious in that game. It's a big game, national spotlight. Uh, he just had a great game. He's had a great season. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, it looked like he he just got punked a little bit in that game mentally. And he'll bounce back. He admitted it in in the in the post game. He said, yeah. I gotta be better. I've had three bad games all season. I wasn't good in this game and I will be better. It's on me. And that's what you want out of him. That's what you want out of your leaders. It's just if they have a bad game, just be accountable. Don't make excuses. Just say you'll be yeah. better next time. And I hundred percent believe that Jason Tatum will be ready for the next game. Yeah, both he and Jalen. Jalen talked about learning to kind of appreciate the journey, and this is certainly part of it right now. Things are not always going to go as smooth. And, you know, Jason Tatum, you said, talked about it's about how we respond. And so that leads us into tonight. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to preview. If you're listening to this the day the podcast drops, we're going to talk about the L.A. Clippers game, which is happening Monday night, as well as preview the Los Angeles Lakers matchup on Tuesday. Be right back. All right, Greg. So... 
For those of you listening today here on Monday, December 12th, Celtics are facing off with the Los Angeles Clippers tonight, followed up by the Los Angeles Lakers tomorrow night to wrap up this West Coast road trip. Let's start with the Clippers here, Greg. They are four and six in their last 10. As of right now, we know that for the Celtics, Rob Williams will continue to be out. Al Horford also can be out, although it's for personal reasons, not COVID. So looks like he may be out of those COVID protocols, um, but looks like he is out for tonight as well. Uh, over on the Clipper side, looks like their stars are playing. Norm Powell's out, but does look like Kawhi and Paul George are going to play. What are going to be, you know, I, I think the obvious thing that we're looking at here is, you know, that when it comes to bigs, we're lacking in them. And when it comes mm-hmm. to Los Angeles Clippers, Zubac, my God. This guy, this is going to be a, a matchup problem for the Celtics. But is that going to be the main thing you're looking at tonight? Or what's going to be the main thing that you're looking for in the Celtics-Clippers matchup? Well, first thing on the Horford piece, right? It's a back-to-back. So Horford was going to sit one of these games anyway. Great. Um, you, you probably want him playing against Anthony Davis. He's he's the, as, as we mentioned in the, when we were previewing this trip, I, I said Zubac might be more of a problem than Davis. And I was like, I'll probably sound pretty <laughs> stupid saying that. So like, that's kind of how I see Horford being out is he's got to be out one of these games anyway. So let's have ready for Anthony Davis. Um, in the Clippers game, you know, you know the Kawhi and PG going up against the Jays. We just t- we just did our duos pod, which you know, in retrospect, looks pretty bad not having the Splash Brothers on that top five list after what they just did. <laughs> but you know, the, we have our reasons. Yeah. Um, now we got the the younger version of what the Clippers were trying to do with Kawhi and PG. Tatum has always played well against George and against Kawhi in the past. I want to see how he responds, obviously, in this game because he wasn't good, as we just said, against the Warriors. I fully expect the Jays to be ready for this matchup, and I expect Clippers fans at the end of this game to be really, really envious of what we have in Boston because they're they're. I think I think we're going to smoke the Clippers, to be honest with you. I think we're going to beat them by about 15, 20 points. I think we're going to bounce back. I think we're going to be angry at the way that we played in the last game. If there's anything we've learned about this team over, over the past couple of years, is that when they're upset about something, they're going to bounce back. You know, yeah. it didn't happen in the finals. That's the one time it didn't happen really last year after they went on that streak. But I mean, th- there's that huge narrative that the Celtics didn't lose two in a row for quite some time at the end of last season until the end of the season in which we lost three in a row, right? And yeah. I, I don't think this this team is going to lose two in a row very often this season. So what I'm looking for in this game, Will, is just a, strong bounce back performance especially by the jays especially by jason tatum yeah and to, and to the jason tatum point he seems to really get up for these games against the clippers and specifically going up against guys like paul george and Kawhi leonard who you know f- for the last couple of years tatum has been aspiring to get into that class to be like you better mention my name in this class and now i think at least at, at this point in the season where we don't know what version of Kawhi Leonard still remains. He's been only played eight games all season, you know, only averaging 11 points on a pretty heavy minutes restriction. You know, he's kind of past those guys, but you look at his last couple of games against the Clippers. So out of his last five games here, he's got four absolute stud performances. So he's got 30 points and six rebounds, 39 points and nine rebounds, 34 points and seven rebounds, uh, kind of a dud here, 14 points, five rebounds, five assists, and then another 29 points and 10 rebound games. So those are his last five games against the Clippers over about the last two and a half seasons. So this is a matchup that, you know, that Tatum always has kind of circled and he tends to always play in general. When we go to LA, I feel like that's always kind of a moment where Tatum 
likes to kind of put on a show a little bit. You know, we that was one of his break first breakout games was actually against the Lakers in that all-star season when it was like, oh, this guy's a problem. They're sending double teams and he's putting up 40 points in this game. So I really do expect a bounce back, just like Tatum said, this is about how we respond. You know, on the on the big's point, do you have any concern? Because I, I don't think the the drop coverage is going to be as big of, of a concern in this game. Um, depending on what versions of Paul George and Kawhi Leonard we get, maybe that changes. But I think it's been you know that that's the toughest part for me looking at this Clippers team is I was trying to figure out what my my main thoughts are. But they just have had such a mismatch of who's been available night to night that there really isn't a true consistency as to this team is this way, other than that they have enough depth that they can kind of make up for a little bit of the loss of certain areas and it's allowed them to hang around at 15 and 13 right now coming into the season. And so it's really hard for me to pinpoint what's going to be their plan of attack. But but I am, do you have any concern with Cornette, Blake, Grant? going up against a guy like like Zubac, who a couple weeks ago almost had that 30-30 and 30 game. No, I think we're going to be okay against Zubac. The way that we played against Aiton inspired some confidence in me. Uh, Blake's just been super physical. I think that's a better matchup for him because the, the Clippers don't have as many guys that can kill you at the three-point line off of the pick and roll, which is what the Warriors can really do. Um, so I think that drop coverage, I, I still would expect it to be a couple steps higher than just like sitting in the paint the whole game. Um, I, I think Paul George will be happy to shoot the mid-range shot. Kawhi will be happy to shoot the mid-range shot off for the pick and roll action. I think the Celtics will live with that. Um, what we couldn't live with was Steph Curry and Clay Thompson bombing away from three off of that. The only guy who worries me a little bit, it was just kind of interesting, is Norm Powell. Um, if, if we're just going to play out for this game. Oh, he's out. Okay, great. He's out I'm, not wor- game, yeah. I'm not worried about it at all. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, with Norm out, cause he's the one guy that I think can really, um, step into a three off of that pick and roll and look good doing it. Paul George, he might, you know, he might go off. He has some of those games, but I'm not really worried about Paul George, to be honest with you. I think Tatum and Brown are better than him. So Zubac, if for whatever reason, um, you know, he goes for 20 and 20, I think it will just be, he's just so big, man. It reminds yeah. me of watching like Andrew Bynum back in the day where it's like, man, Andrew Bynum's just like bigger and stronger than even Kendrick Perkins. He's just a problem out there. And the fact that we don't have our two main bigs to go up against him, I could see Zubac um, hurting us, but I could also see the Celtics just playing him off the court on the other end of the court. So, I, and that's kind of what happened with Aiton. Aiton looked a little lost on the defensive exactly. end against us. So hopefully our best uh, defense is our offense against Zubac. All right, and with that, let's let's go quickly to the Tuesday night game since we won't be with you uh, until later in the week here. So the Celtics will then, after their game against the Clippers on Monday night, will then round out their West Coast trip, which they are or their road trip that they're currently three and one on. But the West Coast portion will wrap up as well uh, against the L.A. Lakers. What are your thoughts going into this game? Like you mentioned a couple weeks ago, you know, we talked about, hey, maybe Zubac is a little bit scared of Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis, over the last month or so, has just put himself into the first team All-NBA. We both had him on our third team All-NBA uh, a few weeks back here, uh, but he certainly put himself at least in the conversation of being in that first or second team, giving Jokic and giving Embiid kind of a, a run for their money. But as we look forward to this game, this is a team that just does not shoot the ball well. When they do, it really changes the dynamic of, of what their team can be, especially with LeBron and AD. But that has not been something they've been consistent with. What are what are you looking for when it comes to this matchup? 
Well, LeBron and AD were great last night uh, against the Pistons. They went for, I think, 70 points combined or 71 points combined. I did, I've been watching a bit more Lakers basketball recently just because of this matchup that's upcoming. And LeBron, some nights, man, he just looks old, you know? So if, if he gets one of those nights where he's ready and he looks like he did last night against the Pistons, then we're going to have, we're going to have our hands full. But if LeBron looks passive, unsure of himself kind of standing around the perimeter just shooting threes that's what i saw out of lebron two games ago for them and then last night he was cutting hard to the paint anytime davis had the ball in the post or russ drove on the baseline and lebron was on the opposite side that 45 degree cut that he was so Mm -hmm. good at um, with the heat he was doing that last night with the lakers and lebron as a cutter that's one of probably his most underrated skill sets is his ability to cut and make things happen with his athleticism and just his instincts on what where the creases are in the defense. And I think the Celtics, in the way that we play defense, there is some opportunity for LeBron to take advantage of that cut and back door, especially on switches. Um, you know, if we if we're switching off ball, LeBron slipping to the rim, I think could be a problem. He's been screening a lot more this season, especially in pick and rolls for Russ Westbrook. Russ has looked a lot better of late. They got Schroeder. Um, Schroeder's back, and he's been playing well for them, starting at point guard. And yeah, Pat I mean, Bet- Schroeder just helps them having another guy, right? Yeah. Like, like just when they didn't have Schroeder early in the season, and I, I'm not going to tie their turnaround entirely to Dennis Schroeder, but just inserting another NBA player, regardless of what you feel, Celtics fans, about Dennis Schroeder. He's an NBA-level player. So he can do NBA things on an NBA court. And so having that in your rotation and not having to rely on some of the lower level names that they were having to go to has made a difference in just having that extra level within within your rotation. And I think it's certainly I don't, I don't know if it's a complete turnaround, but they're nine and six in their last 15, certainly on a far better pace than what they were at the beginning of the season. Yeah, they look okay. They look okay. And it all stems from Anthony. Isn't Davis. it funny that that's, that that's the best way to sum up the, the Lakers this season <laughs> is, yeah, they look okay. They look okay. I mean, they look like trash to start the season. So the fact that they're now at, yeah, they look okay. It's a, it's a pretty market improvement. Well, I mean, it all started with Anthony Davis. When he started playing as everyone hoped he could play and would play this season, then their season turned around, you know, and it looked like at the beginning of the year, like it was like LeBron looking at Davis, Davis looking at LeBron and being like, hey, we got each other. But like they didn't actually do anything about it. And they didn't like actually play to the names on the paper and the names on the back of the jersey. And they were just like, all right, we're going to win because we have these two guys. That's just not the case in today's NBA anymore. Like your stars have to be great if you want to compete, even against the worst teams in the league. There's just so much talent. Uh, There's so much math that goes into the game now with teams just bombing away from three. We saw the, I mean, even last night, dude, the Rockets beat the Bucks. Oh, I missed Giannis, I, I Giannis had 16 yet. points against the Rockets. Like this, <laughs> that happens in some exactly, games, you know? exactly. And the Lakers, but it wasn't national just, television, and it wasn't a big game, so you're not going to see the same response that you would for the exactly. Tatum Steph, game. Against Steph the Curry went three for 17 for 11 points, like three games ago for the Warriors. Yeah. Like this stuff happens in an NBA season. For the Lakers, it was just happening every single night. <laughs> yeah. And now now they're playing to their potential. Um, they're playing to the potential of their resumes. LeBron's been better. Anthony Davis has been better. Russ has accepted that six-man role. Even when guys are out, they don't start Russ. Russ comes off the yeah. bench no matter what it is. He plays about 20 to 25 minutes a night, which is perfect for him. 
and he, he's playing well. So I think it's going to be a fun game. It'll be the second night of a back-to-back, last game of a road trip for the Celtics. So I would expect the Celtics to beat the Clippers will, and to be 4-1 and one going, going into that last game. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you want to go 5-1 and one on this trip because why not? But I would expect the Celtics to probably lose against the Lakers, if I'm being honest with you. I think it's probably going to be a 4-2 and two road trip. Uh, they lose against the Lakers, and it's probably one of those games where we're just like, man, Anthony Davis is, is legit. Yeah, I mean, this is just a really tough road trip. You know, you look at this, Brooklyn, Toronto, two playoff teams. Brooklyn, at least with the talent level, to potentially be in the you know Eastern Conference title race. Phoenix, they were the one seed. Golden State, they're defending champs. LA Clippers, they have the original prototype of what y'all are doing now when you have two dynamic, you know, two-way wings. And then you have the Lakers with LeBron and Anthony Davis. So this is a road trip that has been full of playoff teams, potentially title contending teams, and very high-level all-stars. So I'm with you. I, I think my expectation is likely a split of some sort between these two LA teams. I think if the Clippers are able to get them, I think the Celtics would then rally around that. And we're not we're not leaving this with bat with three straight losses. And so mm. they would take down the Lakers. But I, I think this feels likely for a split of some capacity. And if you get out of this four and two on a really tough road trip, you got to feel good about that, especially with seven game homestand coming up to take you all the way through the holidays. The return of Rob Williams looks like it's coming soon it's day to day at this point we know he's out for the clipper game we don't know if he'll play against the lakers he's on the trip so there is a potential that they'll have rob williams for for some of that laker game but if not it appears it's it's definitive that he'll be back at some point during that seven game homestand so if the Celtics can get out of this four and two i find no reason to to worry about this team i i you know like you said some of these games happen like against golden state um, this is a tough road trip. This is the NBA. A lot of surprises happen, like you've talked about Rockets against Bucks. You know, so if we can get a split out of this, leave four and two, that's going to be a very, very successful road trip for this team. So we'll check back in on these LA games later in the week and then start to preview a couple of games over the weekend, which actually feature two matchups against a really intriguing Orlando Magic team on Friday night and then again on Sunday. So we will talk about that during our next podcast. But for now, before we go ahead and get out of here, let's hit y'all with a bop check. All right, Greg, it's vibe check time. I'm I'm, going to have you go first on this one. What you got for us this week? Okay, so I am vibing with the finale of White Lotus. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch it. I was I've been dreaming about it because I it was the last thing I watched before I went to bed last night. I came home from my trip and you know like I said I've been feeling a little bit under the weather. All I wanted to do was was, was cuddle up with my dog and watch White Lotus. So I I 100% did watch the finale. So spoiler alert in case in case those of you listening have not you may want to either sk- uh, pause this right now or skip ahead to my vibe check. Yes. And so to me the ending and um Jennifer Coolidge's character her ultimate demise, I think, was perfect. You know, I, I could see people. I didn't read much of their reaction. Danielle loves like going on Twitter immediately af- after a show and just seeing. I, what I usually think. do that too. I haven't yet because I was so tired. I passed out right away. But today, I fully plan on digging in on Twitter, trying to find a podcast or two that that mm-hmm. gives their thoughts on it. But continue. Uh, the Prestige podcast Bill Simmons does is pretty good for that. I, yeah. I just started listening to that last week. I didn't realize it existed. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, what 
Jennifer Coolidge's character, I mean, to to have that like operatic ending where she finds the gun and she's like, you can just see she's going to make a bad decision at this point. And it was probably a good decision, honestly, because I think those yeah. dudes were in fact going to kill her. So she decides based to on just, the based on the evidence in the bag, it seems it seems yeah. highly likely. <laughs> so she decides to just shoot everybody. You don't really see her shoot anybody you just see it all like pointed at her like it's not her perspective it's it's our perspective looking at her and she's just mm-hmm. shooting shooting at anything and we're great just camera assuming, work. yeah great camera work we're assuming that she's killing the dudes all the gay dudes in italy and she ends up killing all of them and then she's trying to make her escape and she looks at the boat and i'm like she's falling in She's falling in yeah. and she's going to die. This is how Jennifer Coolidge dies. And it was like kind of on the nose a little bit for her character, but I think it was perfect. Danielle and I were howling, laughing that that's the way that she ends up dying. It's just like clumsily trying to get into the boat. She doesn't yeah. even take off her like seven inch heels. It's that like, was one of my first Coolidge, thoughts yeah, as well. It's, it's like just un- your unstrap heels your heels. Give, your, unstrap give yourself your heels, a chance there. Throw them into the boat just to like see how far <laughs> that fall actually is. And just like look for a ladder, you know, spend a minute looking yeah. for a ladder to see if you can get into that boat. That was just absolutely hilarious to me. The fact that Albie just got got and his dad was like, Albie, you can't be such a mark. If you think this girl's actually going to come live her life with you and yeah. you're going to give her 50K just because she looks like she's in trouble. And he literally says to to her, like when they're when they're having their little pillow talk, I don't know if he uses the word save, but he says, like, I'm going to help you. Like, I'm yeah. going to be the I'm going to be your knight in shining armor. It's like, Albie, you're such a freaking idiot, man. This girl is playing you. It's so obvious. Your dad. I, I, OK, were you surprised that the dad didn't just tell his son, like, hey, I, I had sex with this girl, too? I feel like he was on the verge of going down that path. But then once the son kind of dangled the I'll help you with mom card, and that's ultimately mm-hmm. been the driving force for that character yeah, this entire sure. trip. That was what stopped him from to him the the trade off of because he he knew that fifty thousand was just a waste he knew yeah. that was he is like there's no chance that this works out like especially knowing that he's the one who freaking hired her you know mm-hmm. like he understands that this is going to be a really tough lesson for his son that he normally would prevent but I think that carrot of maybe this helps me with my true mission is mm-hmm. worth that fifty k and having my son learn this really tough lesson that is fairly obvious to everyone else. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny with Albie's character. Cause at the beginning you kind of think like, Oh, he's this good guy. He's going to be like the example of what um, the new generation of men could look like for everyone mm-hmm. watching it. And, you know, treating women with respect and being sex positive and all these things that the, that Mike white was really trying to show. But then at the end, you're like, oh, he's this kid's just a dumb idiot. And then yeah. when you see the three generation of men yes, looking at the was, hot this girl, is, this, at the this was my favorite scene. I don't know if it was my favorite scene, but it's up there. It's one of my favorite scenes for this last. Yeah, go ahead. Cook, cook on it a little bit. Was no, just so at the end of the day, these three generations of of Italian bread men, they all got that dog in them. Yeah. They just all got that dog in them. Hot girl walks by in the in the line while they're while they're getting ready to check in for their flight. All three turn their heads at the same time. 
at the end of the day, you know, the, 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 the uh, what was it? The grandfather who talked about, <laughs> who talked about the feeling that he got. I'll keep it as PG as I can mm-hmm. uh, from hugging the, uh, the girl that the, the prostitute that ended up being getting the piano job, which by the way, so I don't know how that karma worked out for her that she basically poisoned the guy and then just took his job. Um, but, you know, he talked about the feeling that, that, that he got as an older man. And it was like, yeah, these, at the end of the day, these guys all have just that same generational trait that's just apparently running through them despite the narrative that was kind of set up with albie so i did think that that was uh a really funny scene the the last part that i i thought was interesting with white lotus was the two couples so basically mm, yeah i think what i that. what i kind of took away from this was that cameron's a prick but he's the prick that was kind of needed to save uh ethan and what was aubrey plaza's character's name again uh I don't remember. Well, I, never, he, I, I never remember names. I'm, well, you were doing pretty good with names right now. That's why I was impressed because I, I forgot Albie's Hat- name already. Hatcher? Um, no, that's not right. No, that's definitely not it. <laughs> what, what is she, Margaret Thatcher? What do you think of? <laughs> I have uh, no idea. I thought so, we yeah. with an H, no? So the Aubrey Plaza character and, and Ethan, who was her her husband, apparently the spark they were missing was just Cameron being a prick and throwing their, their entire relationship you know, into this massive conundrum of, are we going to make it or not? Mm-hmm. And that was the part for me. I was like, I don't really know what I'm taking away from what these two couples went through on this trip. Yeah. As we're watching it, Danielle and I like, is this just the whole thing to get them to be swingers together? Like what, what's going on here? Uh, but you know, I, you obviously think that Cameron and Ethan, like one of those guys might be the body in the ocean at the end that you Harper, see. Harper, by the way, beginning. that was her name, Harper. Har- I knew it began with an H. I told okay. you. I said, I said Hatcher. Yeah, Hatcher's not even a name, though. That's why I said Margaret Thatcher is the closest I could think of. Hatcher's not a name. If, <laughs> I your, had name the, is, if your name is Hatcher out there, please write into us. I had the first, I had the first two letters right and the last in two the last letters two, right. Yeah. So they're fighting in the ocean. You think that maybe like one of them actually does die, but then you see the guys running out from the beach. Like, yeah. okay, that that's just a, a red herring. They're not actually going to die. And then my guy, um, my guy Ethan, gets it in on the island with Cameron's wife. Gets his revenge. You know, Cameron's wife has been saying the entire time, "You got to do what you got to do to make yourself feel better." And they decided to do that. And then. I don't know if it's because this dude is like big into fantasy sex. He watches a lot of porn. You know, that's a big running thing throughout the season. Um, What's her name? Harper. Harper Harper. tells him at one point, like, you like porn more than you like me. Like, how can we have the relationship if you're not attracted to me? That was a big thing over the last couple episodes. Gets it in on the island. And then he's like, oh, yeah, like sex is cool. I forgot about sex. (laughs) Way better than looking at a screen and doing whatever I'm doing when I'm doing that. So it was fun to see their their relationship able to bounce back because it looked like at some point that maybe they weren't going to do it. And there's going to be this weird commentary on how like no couples can make it. Cause that's kind of what it seemed like over the first two seasons is that mm-hmm. none of these couples are really surviving and none of them actually have true love. And I think what the thesis is that like love kind of happens in weird places. And sometimes, you know, relationships go through lulls and whatnot and you just need a spark for whatever reason. It was them cheating on each other to get that spark back. But Hey, they got it back. Who are we to judge? Hey, shout out to Cameron. Apparently, apparently Cameron's the savior of those of those two relationships. Man, that's an attractive man. Theo James is an attractive man. I feel like he's going to have like a huge career after this. Uh, I, I know he's he's done a few things on HBO, and I think he was in like one of those British shows that's super mm-hmm. popular. But 
I think he's going to be really popular over the next uh, next ten years. Yeah, he did an excellent job playing a prick. I mean, he was he was on. I believe he's. I can't believe he's British. Finish. <laughs> yeah, when you hear when you hear him talk, it's uh, it's a little disconcerting. And sometimes, like uh, I know other people have talked about the first time they heard Idris Elba talk after he played um, Stringer. After he played Stringer, thank you. Yeah. After he played Stringer, it was like, wait, this dude's British. It was like it it kind of shattered some people's uh some people's minds when they first heard that. But that was a good vibe check. I like that dude. The White Lotus, if you guys haven't watched and you're listening to this and you're like, man, what this sounds like a show that's all over the place. It's fantastic. It's a great show. Highly recommend watching. I think you should all go do that if you haven't. And now, people, skip- just real quick, it's a satire. So just understand it's a satire. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And so if you skipped ahead from Greg's vibe check because you did not want to get White Lotus ruined for you. Let me give you all my vibe check. And what I am not vibing with is earthquakes. So (laughs) I mentioned that I was in Mexico City uh, over the weekend for my girlfriend's birthday. was down there with a few friends, just, you know, eating and drinking through the city. Beautiful, beautiful city. Love Mexico City. Third time I've been there. Um, However, Sunday morning, uh, I was woken up to and I've been feeling a little under the weather Saturday night. We have been out, you know, drinking stuff for for, uh, some birthday celebrations. And so Sunday morning. Uh, we hear the siren going off. We're not quite <laughs> sure. Terrifying. Not quite sure what it is. And so my girlfriend gets up. She kind of goes over to the window. And she's from Mexico. And she's not from Mexico City, but but it's from Mexico. And, you know, earthquakes are fairly common within Mexico City. In fact, we found out later that there were several small ones that had happened before the one that we actually felt. And that's relatively common that you may not even know that that one is happening. And so we hear the siren going off. She gets up. And she mentioned she's like, I, I don't know what this is. And I was like, is that a, is that the fire alarm or is that like a, is there is there you know the fire department outside? And she was like, I think it's an earthquake. I was like, what are you are you sure? And so she comes back to bed and she's checking her phone. I sit up and I see the room start to sway side to side. <laughs> How high and up are you in the building? So that's the thing. We're we're on the eighth floor, which is probably really the tenth floor because there's a two level parking garage on it as well. And so I see the room start to sway. And like I said, I wasn't feeling great. And we were drinking a little bit the night before. So in my head, I'm like, maybe I'm maybe this is like an optical illusion. I just don't feel well. And you so don't I, do good with motion. I don't do well with motion. This this was relatively subtle. This was more freaky than like it actually like, you know, made my stomach drop or anything like that. But it was just like so I so I put my foot on the ground because I was like, All right, I need to stand up. And as soon as I put my foot on the ground, I was like, oh, no, this this MF is moving. Like, this is swaying right now. And it was like, what do we do? And she was like, just get dressed. I don't know. <laughs> and so we opened up our uh, our hotel door, and we had a couple friends that were on either side of us. Everybody's kind of in the hallway like, you see this, right? Like, we're yeah. moving. Another guy had come down from the hallway, and it only lasted probably about 20 to, to 30 seconds or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was definitely very freaky. Luckily, the area that we were in, it was a new building, and it was kind of made to handle that type of movement but it was a i believe the final register was a 6.0 magnitude which if you look at you know the history of of different earthquakes which of course i was doing afterwards of course when you get to like that seven eight level that's when it's like some real damage happens but six is just before that you know six comes right before seven Mm -hmm. and so uh, i know it obviously would go 6.1 6.2 and so on but that was a very disconcerting feeling to wake up and see your room on the eighth floor swaying back and forth. So while I can add that to my life's resume that I have now, quote unquote, survived uh, an earthquake, I do not recommend this feeling to those of you out there. Uh, but still go visit Mexico City. It's a beautiful city. Um, but be aware that this is a possibility. 
man, that's scary, dude. Like, so things that terrify me, earthquakes, landslides, mudslides or landslides, whatever they're called. And then tornadoes, obviously tornadoes are like the, the we, thing that I'm most scared of. For those listening, when, when Greg and I moved down to Austin, Texas, uh, now a little <laughs> over 10 years ago, I didn't realize that tornadoes were such a big fear for you. And I know when we were driving down, and obviously we had no idea about the, you know, where we were moving. We, we were basically moving down blind 10 years ago. Yeah. And so I remember us driving down, we drove from Boston to Austin and we were somewhere in the, you know, in the Southeast or somewhere in the South at this point. And it was about to rain as we were driving. And I remember you just constantly, like every three seconds, looking to see if you could see like a tornado building up. And I was like, I don't think it happens every time, Greg, it rains. <laughs> but it was, I think in your mind, you were just like, this is what I've heard about. This is, this, yeah. this is it's coming. It's coming. But, uh, but yeah, I remember that being an interesting fact to learn about you as we were driving down here. Dude, I have nightmares about it. tornadoes like every week. It's terrifying. But so now that you've experienced an earthquake, like, is there any? Anything else you've experienced that was even somewhat like that, just in terms of like what went through your body as it was happening, what went through your mind? Not from like a natural disaster type scenario. And and I mean, honestly, like it was it, it was so confusing that it was like there wasn't a panic. It was it was a confusion for sure. And then probably a brief panic because then it did stop. And so then it was like, OK, I feel like we have time to adjust and we had time to kind of create a plan, which ultimately then we, we realized that like life as, as usual was proceeding. It was just us who have not, are not used to this climate and this happening that were like, should we be freaked out? Cause everyone else was kind of back to normal about mm -hmm. 30 seconds after it happened. Yeah. So we were like, okay, we don't need to overreact. But as far as I, it's a good question, but I, I think, cause I, th I haven't really experienced too many, natural this wasn't a disaster but natural occurrences that mm -hmm. would have allowed for for this type of, of panic so it, it was just this it was, it was just uncomforting to be like oh my god like you know i've i've seen movies and I've, I've seen you know video clips and documentaries of stuff that's happened from actual earthquakes and the fact that we were you know a few points on the magnitude scale of of that being something dangerous like when you reflect on it, I think it's actually scarier to reflect on than it was in the moment because it was, you know, you were just so hyper aware of, okay, I don't really know what to do. I'm not prepared for this situation that you didn't have time to think about it that way. But when I had a chance to sit back in my bed and start looking up stuff, that's when it starts to hit like, oh my God, this could have been way worse than it was. Luckily, everyone was safe. It was fine. It was not, you know, like I said, for Mexico city, this was not that big of a deal. Um, but just for those of us that were not used to these circumstances, definitely shook us a little bit to, to start the Sunday morning. Well, I'm glad you're okay. Uh, I hope I never experienced an earthquake, but now that you say it, like I kind of want to experience an earthquake. Well, because it's, you know, now that we've served that we've, I, I hate using the word survives. That makes it sound way more, you know, harrowing than it actually was, but now that we've gone through it. Yeah, it is. It is kind of unique to be like, yeah, I went through this earthquake and not just, I remember like in New York, there was a kind of fake earthquake, you know, maybe like four or five, six years ago. And then everyone was on Twitter, like, oh, my pen fell over. And it was mm -hmm. like, it survived earthquake 2015 or I don't know, whatever year it was. But this was like, man. People in the hallway is like, okay, you're, you're seeing this, right? Our, we're moving. <laughs> we're shaking side to side. So it, it's a unique experience. I can check it off my list, but to your point, would not do it again, would not recommend, would not give five stars. So yeah, that, those are my final thoughts on being in an earthquake. Well, I'm glad you're okay, bro. And with that, I, I think it, it's, uh, it's a good time to wrap up this episode.
Yeah, let's put a bow on this one here. That is going to do it for this episode of Green with Envy. We will be back with y'all later in the week. We will talk about the two LA games and hopefully either what has already happened in the return of Rob Williams or what looks like the imminent return of Rob Williams during the seven-game homestand that the Celtics have coming up to end the month of December. With that, Greg, any final thoughts? And if not, let us know what we can hear on the way out. The one more thing, King, is still sleeping, bro. We're going to hear some music from my band down here in Austin, Texas. We are called Black Sheep Optimists, and this one is our newest release called Skywalking. Feeling good, feeling great. Peace, everybody. Peace. I wish it that I never seen the stars in your eyes A glimpse of what I'm missing, thinking it's a mirage Ooh, you got me tripping and it's hard to describe But I stay for a minute cause I'm digging the vibe I like the way you're looking at the look in my eyes Don't be casual feelings when it's only a vibe Don't know what the deal is, I'm a typical guy You know the one thing different is the state of your mind I'm like, oh my, my, someone throw me a rope I'm getting too damn high, didn't know I could float You could call it a vibe, it's probably all that you wrote But I'll be doing this shit finally if I didn't have hope Cause you know that that embody that would go with the flow I could sing a different song If I could not hit the notes You had me taking off When you took off your clothes It should be coming down by now But I won't Let's go